Uh, I'll look into it. I don't know how to fix that. If <laughs> so I don't know really what I'll do if I look into it. But it'll be interesting to see if it's a problem for me. Um, yeah, I make no promises with the podcasts. I put them up there, and I hope they're useful. But if they're not, or if they don't work, then uh, you know, buyer beware. That's right. OK, uh, so we're going to just finish off with a little bit of what was in the notes from last time, chapter 5. Um, talk a little bit about the index of refraction, the speed of light, and what we mean when we say speed of light. And then we'll go on to what is chapter 6 and talk about basically crystals. Talk about uh, anisotropic materials and some of their behaviors and uh, where that behavior arises from physically. So going back to last time, finishing up the notes there. Um, so speed of light right, is a defined quantity. There it is. Anybody have all those digits memorized? <laughs> I don't. Um, but there it is. It's defined, so you know you can't really measure the speed of light. If you think you're measuring the speed of light, you're really measuring length, because that's defined. Time is defined, and length is a, is a uh, the meter is a derived unit. Um, okay, so that said, in vacuum, it's defined. In materials, it's a function of the material properties. It's a function of epsilon and mu. Um, Sometimes we talk not about the value of epsilon, but the dielectric constant kappa, which is the ratio of epsilon to epsilon naught. So this is always a number that's greater than or equal to 1. What's nice about that is it's unitless. right? So you don't have to convert between different uh, systems of units. And if you see the number, you can immediately infer what it means. It's a high dielectric constant or not. And so we write the velocity in a material is, well, from our previous derivation from the wave equation, the velocity in material is 1 over the square root of epsilon mu. And we can write that as the square root of, I guess, uh, 1 over epsilon naught mu naught times the ratios of epsilon and epsilon naught mu and mu naught. So there's a term that comes from speed of light in free space, and then there's terms that come from the relative permittivity of the material. Okay, so for our purposes, mu is always going to be mu naught. Epsilon over epsilon naught is this kappa. So we can write this as C. That's this term. Uh, this term is related to kappa. So kappa would be in the denominator. I can write this as kappa epsilon naught. And it's inside a square root. So I have this expression for the velocity of a wave in a material that has a, a uh, permeability k. So we typically, in optics, write the speed as some number of times smaller than c. Number of times smaller is 
n the index of a fraction, equate these things, n equals um, square root of kappa, the square root of epsilon over epsilon naught. We call it the index of a fraction, and most commonly we, uh, we then think of the index of a fraction based on this definition. It's something that tells us about the speed of light. So what's a typical index of a fraction for glass? 1.5. 1.5 is pretty typical. Um, in the optical spectrum, yeah, anywhere from like 1.3 to 2 is sort of obtainable in materials. In order to get higher indices of refraction, you typically have to use materials that are not transparent. So silicon is opaque in optical wavelengths and has an index of refraction of about 3.1. Okay, so what's the physical interpretation of n? I just gave one explanation. It's how fast the light travels in vacuum compared to in the material. Um, we can investigate a little more and say, what happens if n is complex? Right? n is the square root of some number. Okay, so square root, maybe it's complex. There are instances where it's complex. Why would, how could we interpret what the index is if it's complex? This notation doesn't really address that. Or at least at first glance, doesn't appear to address that. Any thoughts? So the trick in understanding what a complex index of a fraction means is to refer to our phasor notation for a wave. This happens to be a spherical wave, uh, but really we don't care about that part that makes it spherical. It's, it's a wave that has uh, a wave front that's propagating along. As time advances, it propagates along in R. And we have an N right here so that the uh, k vector, which is 2 pi over the wavelength. That's its magnitude. And its direction is the direction of propagation. Okay, that depends on wavelength. And wavelength depends on the index of a fraction. So we can write the k vector in a material as being n times the k vector in vacuum. Okay, so the wavelength in a material gets shortened by an amount n, by a factor of, of 1 over n. So that n comes into the numerator, 2 pi over lambda naught, we call k naught, the wave vector in free space. So this wave vector tells you the wavelength and it tells you about the direction of propagation. When it goes into a material, the effect of that material comes in in this n. Okay, so in our expression for the wave, if the wave's in a material, we can just replace k with n times k. Right? Replace k naught with n k naught. That is the k vector in the material. And if we do that, um, we can go further and we can say, what if n is complex? 
What if it has a real part and an imaginary part? So we'll let n be a complex number. Its real part we'll call n prime. Its imaginary part we'll call n double prime. Okay, so we can write it like this. And if we just substitute that in for n, we can then separate the real part and the imaginary part into two exponential factors. This term on the left just looks like a wave traveling through a material with an index n prime. So the real part of the index affects the value of the k vector, affects the wavelength, it affects how fast the wave is propagating. Okay, so the real part of the, the index of a fraction is what we probably normally think of as the index of a fraction. It determines how fast the wave propagates. The imaginary part, which was over here, we have an i times n prime that gets multiplied by an i, so we have two factors of i, so that the term with the imaginary part in it is not e to the i something, it's just e to the minus something. If any of this is, is not making sense, um, let me know. I'll write it out on the board. I know sometimes it's hard to follow and I'm just pointing. I'm happy to write it out, but it also slows things down. And if it is making sense, I'll try to just point at the notes. Okay, so the imaginary part gives rise to an exponential decay. So what do we call it? An exponential decay of an electric field as it propagates in layman's terms. Absorption. Right. So if there's a complex index of a fraction, it means there's absorption. If there's an imaginary part to the index, that is a measure of the amount of absorption. And you can relate this to Beer's law, which decreases to 1 over E. So alpha, the absorption coefficient, is n double prime k naught. The imaginary part of the index of a fraction times k, or if you like, it's the imaginary part of the k vector. The real part of the k vector determines how fast the wave is going. The imaginary part determines how fast it's being absorbed. certain situations you can actually have n double prime being a negative number. What is a device with n double prime being a negative number called? It's an amplifier. Put mirrors around it, it's a laser. You can have ins amplification instead of absorption in a properly prepared system. Okay, so what we're going to deal with today is when we talk about the speed of light, we're going to talk about the phase velocity of light. Um, if you have a plane wave, so far we've been dealing with plane waves, the speed of the wave, the phase velocity, there's a term called group velocity, those are all the same thing. Um, the phase velocity is defined as omega over k. 
omega has units of radians per second. K is radians per meter. This would have units of meter per second in SI units. So that's the speed. And if you have just a single plane wave propagating, you can take its spatial frequency omega, its wave vector k, and from those quantities determine how fast it's propagating. But sometimes we have more than one component to the wave, more than one frequency component. And just look up here at the top animation here. There's a red curve and a blue curve. These might represent the electric field distribution along uh, some distance for two different frequencies of plane waves. If you note, maybe I can pause this. I think I can pause this. Okay, if you note, these have different frequencies. Right, they start out in phase, and the blue one is a little higher frequency than the red one. So the blue one goes through one full cycle before the red one has. So if we have a wave that is made up of more than one frequency, component, that means you have like a pulse of light changing in time. Therefore, the Fourier spectrum has to have some width to it. If there's more than one frequency component. As those frequency components move uh, or at different points along this location, these frequency components will add up either in phase or at other points they'll add up out of phase. And so the waveform that we get is not just a constant amplitude wave propagating along, but it's got peaks and valleys. So there's some structure to this waveform. It's like a pulse moving along, or in this case, a series of pulses. And there's some underlying oscillation to the electromagnetic field. Okay, so if you have some waveform given here in the magenta curve, and it's propagating along, and it's made up of these different frequency components, um, if they're both propagating at the same speed, then the sum of these two is this waveform, and that's going to propagate at the same speed. right? So we call the speed of each of these components the phase velocity. There's a phase velocity for the red component, a phase velocity for the blue component. And when you add them up, you get some waveform. And if we look at this uh, oscillating electric field, if we pick a point on that and we follow it, the rate at which we follow that point is the phase velocity. Okay, well, that differs than the group velocity or can differ than the group velocity. The group velocity is how fast this, this entire waveform propagates, not the underlying phase. Right, so the two will be different if the phase velocity of the components is different. We call that dispersion. And different frequencies have different phase velocities. Okay, so let's see that. Here's the same two waves. Now if you look, the red wave is propagating a little faster than the blue wave two points that start off in phase. Notice the red one is beating the blue one. Right, so if we look at that waveform that's being produced, if you look carefully, sort of the, the nulls or the nodes in that waveform are moving along at a different rate 
than the underlying phase of the waveform. So the, the phases seem to move a little faster than this envelope. So the envelope is moving at the group velocity. The rapidly oscillating phases underneath that is moving at the phase velocity. So those are the, the different terms. So an analogy to this, I think a few of you have seen this slide before, but um, an analogy to this is if you ever watch velodrome racing, bicycles, the team of four races around this, this track and they have to compete as a team. So they're timed or they're, they're racing based on when the last member of the team finishes. So typically what happens is they race in a line, they draft behind each other. And when the person in front who's doing most of the work because he's bearing the brunt of the wind, when he gets tired, he falls off and drifts to the back and the person behind him becomes the lead rider. Right, so what happens is at any instant in time, the racers are moving at a certain speed, but the team is actually moving slower. Right, because as they go, uh, the front of this, the team keeps falling back relative to the, the riders. So that's sort of an analogy of the difference between a phase velocity and a group velocity. So would the speed of an individual rider be the phase velocity or the group velocity? Phase velocity. And so the team would be moving at what we call the group velocity. Okay, so there's a couple uh, equations you can use to determine the group velocity. I'm not gonna, there's an example, I'm not gonna go over it um, today. We're not gonna deal with group velocity today. Uh, but since we're gonna deal with phase velocity, I thought it worth introducing group velocity and pointing out the difference. So where group velocity, uh, where phase velocity is given by omega over k, the group velocity is only, is only relevant when you've got more than one frequency to deal with. And so we look at d omega dk, the change in angular frequency, or the change in uh, temporal frequency with respect to the change in spatial frequency. And that's all I wanted to say about the slides from chapter five. Are there any questions? We'll go over the equations for group velocity more when and if we get to a point where we are gonna be using that. Okay, so we're gonna go on, we're gonna talk about chapter six, which is propagation in, well, for our purposes, it's Propagation in anisotropic materials. I think the book just calls it like polarization. It turns out polarization is really important in anisotropic materials. Um, today we're going to talk about um, crystals, some of the ways we describe parameters of the crystal. Um, next time we'll do some differential equations and some rigorous mathematics. And then the following time we'll go back and we'll, we'll define some structure for describing polarization, which is Jones calculus. Okay, so, uh, and we sort of walk through the chapter, not in the order that it's presented. Okay, so um, probably what we'll get to today is we'll talk about the dielectric tensor. Uh, we've introduced the fact that epsilon is a tensor, but we haven't really described what gives rise to its tensor nature and when it differs from the identity tensor. Uh, we'll look at how plane waves propagate in anisotropic materials. We already showed that 
uh, spherical waves don't propagate in anisotropic materials. So we'll look at how plane waves <laughs> propagate. And uh, that's governed largely by this geometric construct called the index ellipsoid that we'll introduce that describes how the phase velocity um, behaves in a crystal. And it's probably as far as we'll get today. So isotropic, anisotropic, uh, what are all these terms? Isotropic means the same in every direction. Okay, so an example of an isotropic material, most liquids are isotropic. Um, what's another example of an isotropic material? Air, yeah, any gas would be isotropic. Glass, so glass is an amorphous collection of materials have order or structure, it doesn't have an orientation. Okay. So it's up there, yeah, that's okay. Um, okay, so the flip side to that is anisotropic. Anisotropic means the properties depend on the direction in which you view it, or on orientation. Okay, so we must assume that the underlying molecular structure has some orientation. It has to have some, some pattern or some structure to make it orientation dependent. That are dependent. Yeah, okay, so that should be dependent. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so crystals are, by definition, structured material. Okay, so many crystals are anisotropic. Not all of them. Um, anyone think of a crystal or why a crystal might not be anisotropic? Cubic crystals are crystals where there's order, but the order is essentially the same in all directions. So salts, yeah. Um, there's other types of crystals, and we'll go through the list. There's seven different classes. Um, and we'll see that many of the other classes have various uh, anisotropic properties. Okay, so anyhow, so a crystal has some order that still doesn't really explain why the behavior of light going through in one direction should be different than another. Just gives re gives rise to the possibility that it would be. Um, so, so why is it and how does that manifest itself? Well, in a material, the net effect of any light propagating through is described by the electric displacement vector. Right? That has a component due to the external electric field and it has a component due to any induced dipoles, any, any material response to that electric field. And that's this vector P, remember that's what we call the material polarization. It's how much net charge is being displaced by the applied electric field. Okay, so in anisotropic materials, D is not necessarily parallel to E. And we, we saw that before in a little vector diagram, and what that means is this epsilon is not just a scalar, but it must be some tensor that can rotate vectors. Okay, so why would D not be parallel to E? What does that mean? I'll get you started. It means, so this is a scalar right there. Okay, so this term is, well, there's no rotation of this, this field. So what does the polarization have to, what direction does polarization have to be relative to the driving electric field? Uh, different. At least different. It's, it's 
the direction of this vector can't be the same as that. Okay, if they're the same, then you get a sum that's greater or larger, but still in the same direction. Okay, so if polarization is the response of the material to an electric field, it's how the atoms or the charges in the atoms get displaced from equilibrium by an external electric field, why might that not be in the direction the field is pushing the charges? Yeah, there's potential due to other atoms in the crystal, and more importantly, the potential from atoms in some directions are different. Okay, so here's a picture of that, or I attempted a picture of that. So um, you can kind of see that there's some order in one direction that's different than the other, and I'm not going to try to assign a meaning to the different colors of balls, but it's just a sort of a sketch. Um, and I kind of drew spring constants or springs between these balls. You can imagine a mechanical system of balls and springs. And if the spring constant in one direction are different than the spring constant in another, and maybe the masses of these different balls depends on their color here, depends on their position in the lattice, then you can imagine that it might be very easy to uh, maybe displace one of these balls in one direction, but very difficult in another. Very easy if you're pushing against a weak spring, but hard if you're pushing against a strong spring. And as a result, if you push at some intermediate direction, the ball's not going to displace the direction you're pushing it. It's going to displace more in this softer direction. Does that make sense? So we can see an example of that. With uh, We consider the potential well formed by the electrostatic uh, attraction of all the neighboring atoms around a charge. Um, some well, so there should be some parabolic shape, some, uh, yeah, some, some well that it's sitting in. And if the material is anisotropic, that, that well, the curvature, which is a spring constant between the charge and the nearby atoms, it's going to be different in different directions. So this is an elliptical well as opposed to a spherical well. Um, okay, so you may have noticed up here I've got what used to be a lampshade an hour ago. I spent quite a bit of time looking for something that was elliptical. And when I couldn't find it, I looked for something that was spherical and squashable. And I eventually came across this lampshade, which I've marked with some lines. Um, and let's see, explain everything here first. So I've marked with some lines got a ball in it. I've got another ball here that I'm suspending from a point which is located directly above the bottom of the bowl. Okay, the bottom of the bowl is the equilibrium position for this ball when I set it in, in here. Okay, so the idea here is that this, uh, this feely up above, uh, okay, that uh, not yellow one, the steel one, is hanging from a pendulum. So it's always going to, it's basically sitting in a spherical potential. Sitting in a pendulum. It's always pointing down. Um, if this bowl were spherical, this ball would always roll to the, well, it will always roll to the lowest point in the bowl, and that would always be directly below the suspension point. Now, the red lines mark the direction in which I squashed this. 
Okay, so this started out as a, as a spherical surface, roughly, and I squashed it in this direction. So this red line here represents that. This red line represents the unsquashed direction. If you look at this, uh, you can't quite see the whole thing, but it was round, it's now elliptical. So these represent the major and minor axes of that ellipse. So the blue lines represent 45 degrees with respect to that. Now, if I tilt the bowl in some direction, we expect that the ball will roll in that direction, right? And certainly that's the case if I tilt it. <laughs> Nothing magic there. There's just a hole in the bowl holding the ball down. Okay, so I'm tilting it towards you. In the diagram that's like tilting it up, I guess. So the ball rolled up, and the pendulum bob, we can't see it, but it also went up. And you tilt it not, not as far. Okay, so I've tilted it a little bit, um, we'll call it up, and both balls have displaced a little bit up. Likewise, if I tilt it down, the same thing will happen. If I tilt it sideways, go to the right, um, both balls will displace to the right. What happens if I tilt it at 45 degrees? Any thoughts? Yeah, it should fall more towards the major axis, which is this one, right? It's easier for the ball. It's a, it's a shallower potential. It's easier for the ball to do that. So I will attempt to, you can tell if I've rotated at 45 degrees because the little uh, plumb bob should be along that blue line, and it is. The yellow ball, however, is not, so you can think of this as me pushing the whole system at 45 degrees, but the yellow ball doesn't respond by moving at 45 degrees. It moves in a different direction. It moves in a direction that's a little bit easier for it to go because it's a shallower potential. And likewise, if I, if I tilt it along the other axis, you get the idea. So rotating it along the other um, direction and the ball is yellow ball is not displaced in the direction I'm tilting it. Okay, so this is an example of a system where I apply a perturbation in one direction or a force in one direction, and the response is in a different direction. If I wanted to describe the response of how far this ball moved, um, my first attempt to do that might be using something like Hooke's Law. The, harder I, the further I tilt it or the further I, harder I push it, the further it displaces. Um, and that's true. And if this were a spherical bowl, that would adequately describe it. But here there's also a difference in the direction, right? And it depends in which direction. Okay, so we would have to use a tensor to relate the vector in which I push to the vector in which it responds. Right, so that's our analogy. What's going on in the... in the material. So here's the picture of the masses and springs, and here's potential wells, but they're both basically the same picture. And you can think of the charges in a crystal as sitting in these sort of elliptical shaped wells. Electric field comes, applies a force to a charge in a certain direction, but the charge doesn't necessarily move in that direction. And as a result, the polarization of the material 
is not in the same direction that it's being driven. It's not in the same direction as the applied electric field. And we can relate those two using this material susceptibility called chi. Okay, so the polarization is epsilon naught chi times E. So a material that has a charge, a vacuum, what is chi for the vacuum? Sorry, say that again? Mm, not quite. It's zero. In a vacuum, there's no polarization. Polarization is the, dis is the net charge displacement. If there's no charge, there's no net charge displacement. So um, chi would be zero. Right? So chi tells you both something, the magnitude of chi tells you about sort of how polarizable the material is. And then sort of the shape of this tensor tells how it's going to uh, rotate vectors. And that'll come from the structure of the crystal, or the structure of the material described by Kai. Okay, so this is one way to describe a material. Um, and what's kind of nice about this is if there's no material, there's no Kai. Right? So it's, it's in a sense, is sort of a linear function of, of the density of material. Um, form, or the way we're going to describe material is more commonly by describing epsilon. Right, so epsilon has a contribution from the electric field and a contribution from the polarization. We can write it as epsilon is equal to epsilon naught plus chi, essentially. So epsilon naught times the identity matrix plus chi. So the identity matrix times epsilon naught, that's just what you have in free space. The chi term accounts for all the effect of a material. And if we include both of those, we get epsilon. Paul? Can the magnitude of chi be larger than one? Um, it can. Yeah. It can. And what that would mean is just your index of refraction is greater than 1.4, so essentially. Okay, so we're going to work with epsilon uh, more than chi. Um, we're going to deal a lot with tensors. So epsilon is our first tensor. So a little bit about tensor notation. Um, in the notes, I will generally use this bar to denote that a quantity is a tensor. Um, sometimes it's more convenient to write tensor products in this uh, subscript form. And we can understand that subscript form by working out an example of a tensor times a vector. Okay, so let's take uh, Take tensor A times vector B. We can write that if these are three-dimensional, three-dimensional vector in a three-by-three three tensor. A11, A12, A13, A21, A22, A23. 
A31, A32, A33, and B1, B2, B3. So this product, we just go row times column across, and we get A11 times B1 plus A12 times B2 plus A13 times B3. And we multiply the first row times the first column. So plus the second row times the second column. Likewise, we get another term, which I'm going to omit for brevity's sake. That is the third row times the third column. And so there's a pattern here, right? There's, um, we could write this as the sum, and each term we could represent as Aij times Bj. And we sum from j equals 1 to 3. Right, so when j equals 1, if i equals 1, we get a1 times b1, a11 times b1. We get a12 times b2. We get a13 times b3. That's for the case where i equals 1. That's our first term. I happens to equal 2, we get our second term. And if I equals 3, we get our third term. And so if we call this, what do we want to call this? Uh, we call this product vector C. Then this term is C sub x, Let's call it C1. This term is C2, and the term that I haven't drawn is C3. So the x, y, and z components. And so we can write when i equals 1, when we multiply these together, we get the C1 component. When i equals 2, we get the c2 component. When i equals 3, we get the c3 component. So we can use this notation here, where we write a matrix as a quantity with two subscripts. That represents the row and column. A vector as a quantity with one subscript, with the jth element of that vector. And any time a subscript gets repeated, it's assumed that you're actually summing over all possible values of that index. So this is a common way to express tensors in, in mathematics. How many people have worked with this type of notation in the past year or so? So we're going to express things quite a bit in this notation. Um, so if you haven't worked with it, it might take a little getting used to, but um, there's the background. And, um, 
we'll move on from there. Okay, so a couple properties of the dielectric tensor. Um, it's a Hermitian tensor, so it obeys this relationship. If you swap the indices and take the complex conjugate, you get the same result. So this component equals the complex conjugate of this component. This term equals the complex conjugate of that term. And from the first homework, you dealt with cases where we talked about the complex conjugate of, uh, of fields propagating through a material and what that meant. Um, and we saw that if the material was lossless, the complex conjugate uh, representation was the same as the, the original representation. Um, in a lossless material, epsilon is real. Okay, if epsilon were not real, n would not be real and there'd be absorption. Plus, there's no absorption. And if that's the case, what it means is uh, these off-diagonal components are equal to each other. So this is, epsilon is a three by three tensor. It has nine elements, but only six of them are independent of each other. Okay, so we can describe, for if for example, you were to look up the value of uh, epsilon in a table for a particular material, it would likely only give you six values. The other three would be derived from those six. Okay, so in a material we said the uh, potential well for the charges is ellipsoidal. Uh, we saw with this analogy that there's two directions we can tilt or we can, uh, we can perturb the material and have its displacement follow the direction of perturbation. Okay, for this ellipse, it was the direction of the major and minor axes. When I did that, the ball rolled in the direction I was pushing it. Uh, same thing in, in the material. If I displace a charge, if I push on a charge in the direction of its, uh, in the direction of the crystal lattice, then I only I'm interacting with sort of you can think of it as one set of springs. I'm only um, I'm only seeing the effect of the neighboring atoms in that direction. And in those two directions, the displacement of the material is proportional to the electric field. Um, so light that's polarized in either of those two directions will propagate through the material without its polarization changing. If it's polarized some other direction, uh, the material will rotate or change the plane of polarization as the light goes through. Okay, so let's use our wave equation that we derived last time in an anisotropic material. Remember we got this from Maxwell's equations, and we didn't simplify this, or we didn't, uh, we didn't use any assumptions on the divergence of E being zero to make this a simpler form. So we have this form of the wave equation. Um, this describes how light propagates through, through a crystal. And it's most easy to solve this equation if we choose our coordinate system such that epsilon 
is, uh, or such, such that the crystal has its crystal axes along the direction of our coordinate system. Okay, in, in that case, epsilon will be a diagonal matrix. Right? We won't have the off-diagonal terms, we'll have a simpler form of the wave equation. Okay, so that wave equation here can be written in matrix form like this. It's probably not obvious looking at it how that happens. So I will write that out because this is the starting point for much of what we're going to do. So it's worth at least having seen it and probably having done it a couple times. So if I want to evaluate this, um, k cross k cross e is the first thing I need to uh, calculate. Let me start with k cross e. Okay, I'll calculate that, then I'll calculate k cross that. Okay, so k cross e, I can find using the standard method for finding a uh, cross product. I'll write a three by three matrix. Ijk is the first row. Um, Kx, Ky, and Kz will be the next row. I'm doing this in Cartesian coordinates. And then Ex, Ey, Ez would be the next row, and the determinant of that is my cross product. Okay, so I will write this in terms of its i, j, and k components. So the i component has a value of Ky and Ez minus EY times KZ. The J component has a value of KZ times EX minus KX times EZ. k-hat component has a value of kx times ey minus ky times ex. Okay, so that's k cross e. It's not what I want though, I want k cross cross E. Okay, so I'm going to repeat this procedure where I write that as the determinant of a 3 by 3 matrix. I'll start with IJK just as I did before. It's K cross this quantity. So I'm going to start my second row is again going to be KX, KY, and KZ. And my third row is going to be the final vector, which has components here, here, and here.
I just repeat the procedure, um, just end up with more terms. I have an I component, which I will evaluate in silence. So when I evaluate this, I have an expression. It's a vector. right? It's got an i, j, and k component. It depends on a vector. It depends on ex and ez. So I should be able to write this as a tensor relationship. Right? A tensor times a vector should give me a vector. And that's what I've set up on the board on the right. And I just need to identify which terms go where. So the term that goes up here, the first term, is the term that when I multiply it by ex, is going to give me the x component of the vector. Right, so it has to be somewhere within this x component term. And it's the part of this that depends on ex. So there's two parts to that. Right, there's this term and there's this term. There's a minus ky squared and a minus kz squared.
the next term in my matrix depends on which component, should be the terms that depend on which component of the electric field. They should depend on E sub y, and they should produce a vector that's in which direction? In the x direction. So that means somewhere in this term, whatever parts of this depend on E sub y. And there's a term that has a kx, ky times E sub y. And then finally, this term here is the components that depend on E sub z and produce a response in the x direction. So that's this term right here, say plus kx kz. continue this I can either uh, continue with the same method or I can sort of apply a transformation of what the first row should look like to what the, the next row should look like by symmetry this is going to look like minus kx squared minus kz squared and this one is going to look like minus kx squared minus ky squared you can check that in the equation the, for example, the term that depends on E sub z that produces a component in the z direction. Minus kx squared and a minus uh, kz, ky squared. And that's what I've got here. And then... Um, kx, ky here, and a kx, uh, is that right? going to do a trick here and just quote the results that I had on the board. You can, you can step through. Um, I think I've outlined the process. It's clear how we proceed. So we can write that cross product as a tensor relationship. So that's this term. Right? If we want to write the wave equation, we also have to include this term. And if we do it in, if we're defining our coordinate system such that, um, that epsilon is a diagonal matrix, we're using the principal coordinate system, then this right here is a tensor that's diagonal. So I can add it to the diagonal terms, 
which is what I've done. And I'll call the value of epsilon in the x direction epsilon x. In the y direction, I'll call it epsilon y. And in the z direction, I'll call it epsilon z. Okay, so that's where these additional terms come from. They're just the second term in the wave equation. So this, you may recognize as an eigenvalue calculation or an eigen a system where we're trying to find the eigenvalues of a matrix. Okay. We can look back at this expression. If this is a matrix expression, when we multiply that matrix by this vector, if our vector is an eigenvector, we will get some number times the original vector. By definition, that's what an eigenvector is. You multiply it by a matrix, and it doesn't change other than a possible scaling of the, of the length of the vector. Okay, so the way we solve for the eigenvalues of this, or the, the eigenvectors, what electric field direction can propagate without changing, is to solve this expression. Say this expression has to equal zero. That is the wave equation. That will have non-trivial solutions when the determinant of this matrix is zero. Okay, so if we force that determinant to equal zero, that gives us a many-termed expression that in theory can be solved for kx, ky, kz. Or given kx, ky, kz, we can solve for omega. Um, it gives us a, a, a formula that we can use to relate different quantities. Okay, so I'm not going to write out, you know, term by term, what this this determinant equals. But I will say this: um, if you have a particular frequency wave in a particular crystal, such that you know omega, and you know epsilon x, epsilon y, and epsilon z then in order for this determinant to equal zero, there has to be a relationship between kx, ky, and kz. Right? There have to be specific values of kx, ky, and kz such that this is, is solved for the frequency of the wave you have and the, the material it's going through. So there's only certain values of k. There's only certain, um, there's only certain values of k that can propagate through that material for a given frequency wave. Okay, and we plot those as a function of uh, x, y, and z, the x, y, and z components of k, we get this strange-looking surface, which we call the normal shells. So this is the geometric representation of the solution to that eigenvalue problem. Um, so for a given frequency, wave going through a given material, um, you can have a k vector that's determined by um, picking any point on this shell. And then from that point, you get the x, y, and z components. And light can propagate in that direction. The length of k, remember, is important because the phase velocity 
said was omega over k. Okay, so for light propagating in a certain direction, let's say straight up here, you can read off from this, this figure the value that k can have. Okay, it's, it's whatever height this surface is at when it crosses the uh, vertical axis. That's the length of the k vector. And that can be used to determine how fast the light will propagate through the material when it's propagating upwards. Right, and that's a different value than you're going to get if the light's propagating in a different direction, because this is not a spherical surface. Well, if you look carefully at this, and it may not be so clear, this is actually um, a not a, a single surface. This is like two, think of it as like two soap bubbles or something that are co-joined. Um, you can kind of see the outline of a surface here. What it means is that um, basically because we've got all these squared terms, there are two solutions. If I pick one particular value of y and one particular value of z, uh, one particular value of ky and one particular value of kz, I can get two solutions for kx. So plotting both of those solutions um, traces out two surfaces, one inside of the other. Okay, so the longer or the further away a point on the surface is from the origin, the slower the light is going through the material. The greater the index of refraction that the light sees. And in a given direction, if I consider a given direction um, that light might propagate, there are two possible surfaces that can intersect that direction. So there can be two possible points that produce a k vector in the direction I'm considering. That means there can be two possible speeds of propagation. So let's simplify it a little bit and take a cross section. In the XZ plane. If I take a cross section in any plane, what I get is uh, two concentric, that's concentric, right term, two ellipses. So graphically, this allows us to solve the wave equation in the sense that. Um, for a wave propagating in a given direction, okay, so let's just draw a direction, let's say 45 degrees. If a wave's going at a direction that's 45 degrees with respect to the crystal axes, I might want to know how fast is it going. And in order to figure that out, I need to know the value of the k vector that it can have for a given frequency. Well, there's two possible values. There's two points which are both along this 45 degree direction and solutions to the wave equation. So these, sh these shells represent solutions to the wave equation. They have lengths. We call it uh, K1 and 
K2. Okay, those are two possible K vectors that the light can have and propagate through the material. They're different lengths, therefore the light prop can propagate at two different speeds. What do you think might determine which speed it propagates at? The polarization, yeah. So what's happening here is light propagating in a certain direction has an electric displacement that's orthogonal to that. Okay, and that can be in a direction that is the crystal is stiff or direction in which it's soft, if you like. A direction in which the uh, material is easily displaced or one in which it's uh, difficult to displace. Those two polarizations uh, can propagate through with different speeds and without the polarization state changing. In this diagram that I've drawn here, there's a particular direction which is special. And if I ask about a wave propagating, in this case, in the z direction, there's only one solution. So that means that regardless of polarization, the light will propagate through a different speed. Okay, so in that direction, the crystal appears isotropic. Okay. So that might be the case. If you have a crystal where the unit cell is maybe elongated in one direction, but it's symmetric in the other two, then if the light is propagating along that direction of asymmetry, the polarization that the light can have has to be in this plane where the material is symmetric and there's no orientation dependent effect. Okay. That direction of propagation is called the optical axis. And I drew what we call a uniaxial crystal. We'll get to this a few slides from now. And what's drawn up here is called a biaxial crystal. Um, notice this is like two ellipses that best way to describe that. Um, if I were to draw the cross-section of what's drawn up here, it's two ellipses that have different directions to their major and minor axes. So here, the direction in which the two ellipses had the same length was the optical axis. Here, there's two different directions. In which the, uh, there's only a single index of refraction that the light can have. Okay. Because there's two optical axes here, we call a crystal with this property a biaxial crystal, or as this we call a uniaxial crystal. Okay, so there's a few things we can do with this solution. 
we can use it to find the, uh, the phase velocity of light propagating through the material. And we can also find the polarization directions, which will propagate without, without change. Okay, so this is the, the wave equation that we solved. Um, if we, I think you're asked to do this in the next homework, find the eigenvalues of this. They are given by this expression. These are the possible uh, possible components you can plug in here uh, for the electric field and satisfy this expression. So let's do a concrete numerical example with all of this. And that's where we'll wind up today. So we know the phase velocity is omega over k. Um, if it's propagating in the x-axis, along the x-axis in a crystal, uh, find the, I guess find the phase velocity and find the polarization direction. So what we're going to use is basically uh, this expression if our crystal if our coordinate system is aligned to the principal axes of the crystal then epsilon is diagonal as I've drawn it here the lights propagating in the x direction what do we know about ky and kz they're zero. Propag K is the direction of propagation, so I can simplify this greatly. Um, okay, so here's what we just said. If I cross out or set to zero all the terms that have a kx or a ky factor, right, most of these, well, all the off diagonal terms go to zero. And what I'm left with is an expression that I can solve. So I want the determinant of this matrix to equal zero. The determinant of that matrix is just the product of the diagonal terms now. The off-diagonal terms are all zero. So here's the first term, here's the second term, here's the third term. I'll set that equal to zero. And you can see there's going to be three solutions. Right? There is the solution that says omega equals zero. And the first term is zero. That's solved. Omega, omega equals zero. The electric field is that. The constant electric field. It's not a wave. So that's not interesting to us. Um, otherwise, this term can be zero or this term can be zero. Right? So if this term is zero, we can solve for what omega over k has to, equal to, has to be equal to in order for this term to be zero. It has to equal one over the square root of mu epsilon y. Right. Omega over k is the phase velocity. So one possibility is that the phase velocity is 1 over the square root of mu epsilon y. The other possibility is that the phase velocity is omega over k such that this term is 0, or 1 over the square root of mu epsilon z. Okay. So you can probably guess, if the light's polarized along y, this will be its phase velocity. Polarized along z, this will be its phase velocity. You might have been able to guess that without going through the, the wave equation. 
So there's the uh, possible solution for the phase velocity. We also want to know the, um, the eigenpolarizations. What polarization can we put into the crystal and have it propagate through without uh, the polarization changing? So here's an expression for the eigenpolarization. We can use this as a formula. Uh, we said ky and kz were going to equal 0. So if those two equal 0, it might immediately look like, well, the only, the only term that survives is this top one. And we have a, an electric field that must be polarized in the x direction. What's wrong with that solution? What direction, do you remember what direction the light is propagating in this problem? In the x direction. So if we get a solution that says it's polarized in the x direction, it's not a transverse wave. Something's up. Um, and in fact, if we said the phase velocity, we take the case where the phase velocity is um, 1 over the square root of mu epsilon y. That is, if the light is polarized along y, this is the phase velocity. And if you plug that in, um, if you plug in, I guess, k squared is equal to omega squared mu epsilon y, you get the denominator of this term going to 0. So you get 0 over 0. So this is 0. This is 0 over 0, and this is 0. And so you have to actually be a little bit more clever with the math and how you solve this. Um, I'm going to skip over the, the details. We use L'Hopital's rule to evaluate this indeterminate. Um, but the bottom line is polarization along y gives you a phase velocity that's 1 over mu epsilon y. If we plug this in, 1 over mu epsilon y, into here, and we evaluate this, this vector, it has an infinite component. Let's see, it has, uh, it has a non-zero component, an infinite component, and a zero component. And that's essentially a vector that's pointing in the y direction. So one eigenpolarization is along y. And you can probably guess what happens if you plug in our other possible phase velocity, uh, where we use epsilon z. Then we say k squared is equal to omega squared mu epsilon z. This term becomes infinite. And we get an eigenpolarization that's polarized along z. So if the polarization is along z, we get a phase velocity determined by epsilon z. Polarized along y, we get a phase velocity determined by epsilon y. And if we went back to our picture of the normal shells, we have light propagating along x. There's, if we plotted this using, um, well, so we, we do have this plotted in the general sense. So there's two intersections of this line with these spherical shells. There's two possible values of k. And that gives us two possible values for the uh, speed at which the light can propagate. The direction of the polarization, which is not given in this plot, um, that corresponds to those two values of k are the eigenpolarizations.
Okay, uh, we went a little over. We'll wrap up there. Um, next time we'll do more examples and we'll look at uh, the different classes of crystals and how they uh, produce different types of, of epsilon matrices.